What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 153 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Casey Howe. Casey is a meditation and Dharma teacher and also the author of Becoming Water. Casey has dedicated his whole life to meditation and helping others alleviate depression, anxiety, the mental suffering that all of us as human beings go through on a daily, whether we're thinking about the past, the future, and those types of things bring about certain emotional reactions that can cause depression if you're thinking and dwelling on the past or bring about anxiety if you're focused on the future and what might happen. And Casey's here to talk us through the different ways in which he has dealt with those things in his own life and then takes those into his teachings of meditation and Dharma with his one-on-one clients, the retreats that he hosts, as well as the free meditation sessions that anyone who is in the Long Beach area can sit in on. Casey is an awesome gentleman who has really dedicated himself to this lifestyle, this practice, and all he wants to do is help. So check him out at CaseyHow.com. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out that phone and hit that subscribe button. If you'd like to get a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt, you can head on over to MisfitsandRejects.com backslash shop and pick one up. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Casey Howe. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I am joined by Casey Howe, who is a meditation and Dharma teacher here in the LA County area and somebody who is very interesting to me for his life choices and and where he finds himself today and how he's designed his life around meditation, teaching people meditation and and that role it plays within his life and well-being and business. So Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, brother. Thanks for joining us today. And I am, I was genuinely very excited to have this conversation. Not that I'm not excited to talk to everyone I do, but like I do have a fascination with meditation, this side of spirituality. I have been to, you know, Tibet and kind of seen some of the, um, the monks and their practices, I believe, because you are what schooled in Tibetan Buddhism. Is that correct? Yeah, I spent uh, about four years living at Tibetan Buddhist um, centers, all here based in the States, but yeah, in the in that lineage, yeah. Why did you choose that lineage? Why was that fascinating to you? Um, actually, it happened organically. I, I was living at another center for a couple of years, and that was more in the Hindu lineage, and in, in particular, the lineage of Paramahansa Yogananda. You may have read the book, The Spiritual Classic, Autobiography of a Yogi. Heard of it. So that was written by Parma. Yeah. Yeah, amazing book. And I had been going down to those retreat centers for about five years in that lineage. And I ended up moving there. And yeah, long story there. But yeah, sold everything, sold my house, left my girlfriend of 14 years and my dog and two cats because I really wanted to dedicate myself to the practice of meditation and just do my spiritual work. So I ended up moving down to that center, and I lived there for a couple of years. Is that the one in San Diego, like at Swami's? Uh, no, it's it's actually near Santa Barbara. Um, but yeah, same lineage, yeah. And lived there for a couple of years, and then um, I met 
I met a girl there and she was, she actually was born and raised in that community. And she ended up getting, she was our, our chef there. And she ended up moving or getting a job at the Tibetan, one of the Tibetan Buddhist centers. And I followed her there. I thought this is a wonderful um, uh, retreat center and connection. And I had been studying Buddhism along the way. It was just part of the things that I was picking up on. I've probably been practicing meditation maybe 15 years at that point. And it was just a really good fit. And I had a very strong, you could say, karmic connection with it. Um, and I really felt when I landed there at, at the Tibetan, um, the Tibetan centers, I really felt like a home, a homecoming, if you will. That's interesting, dude. And I'm so glad you've articulated this in the way you have, because Misfits and Rejects is a lot about trying to connect with people listening and giving them that kind of courage, that inspiration to take that leap of faith or take that leap out into what they want to really do with their life. Maybe that calling that's always been calling them. And I mean, you took a giant leap and made a very drastic change in your life. You left everything, sold your house, left your girlfriend, left your animals that you loved and went for it. Like what can you describe that calling and that the power of that calling that drove you to do that and what that's about? Yeah. You know, it started, it started really when I was 15 years old. You know, I, I read Siddhartha, um, by Herman Hess in a comparative religion class. I went to a Catholic school and they had to you know, read, read that book. And, and that was my first exposure to awakening, like just the, the idea of awakening or the idea of enlightenment. And when I read it, I was just uh, really infused with, with passion. Like, what is this? You know, how, how do I, how do I get that? I don't know what it really was, but um and so from then on, you know, what I realized after reading, you know, probably hundreds of books and, and I really saw this common denominator of, of meditation. So the dogma, um, and kind of like the maybe religious overlays or this and that would be different, but there was a common thread of meditation. So I became very passionate on meditation or, and, or learning about meditation. And, and that was really, um, inspiring to me until I tried to do it. <laughs> and then I sucked at it. And I sucked for a long time. You know, I was doing what everyone does. I was working, I was going to school and, and living my life and, and really striving to, uh, to show some sort of what I would consider improvement. Although like meditation is like a goalless goal, right? But here I was striving and striving and I felt like, man, I'm not getting anywhere. Like I'm, I'm reading, I'm studying. I found really good teachers, good techniques, but I just couldn't really push through the, in, into really where I wanted to go. And that just started to kind of eat at me. And I also realized that this, this awakening or whatever that might be was, in my opinion, the pinnacle of our human existence is to realize self and realize what are we really doing here and realize uh, truth. Like what is, what's the truth? Like, why, why are we here? And when I looked into what society said that, that this is what we're here for and, uh, you know, the very basics like money and sex and this and that, you know, I just was feeling very unfulfilled. So I thought, you know, I really have to do this. Like, this is it. And I, and I believed in that wholeheartedly. And so as that grew and kind of the frustration grew with it, like, 
I was more and more inspired, but then I was more and more frustrated. I thought, you know, I really need to do something. And, um, and yeah, so I went for it. Well, well, first off, that Catholic school of yours really fucked up by letting you read that book because uh, they, they lost a follower. Um, exactly. Yeah. But uh, congratulations, man. I mean, thank you for sharing that because I think there's a lot of people out there and listeners, including myself, who have had that desire to go after something or even something that's so in us genetically. You know, like a lot of people are unfortunate in that. They they grow up in a family or environment where it's not okay to be themselves, whether it's gay, straight, trans, whatever it may be, and they have to like live like that without really getting to express or choose to go after that calling that you just described. So, amen. Thank you for sharing that, that you went after it. But I like, and it's interesting to me, that you went after it in a pursuit originally of this sort of awakening or enlightenment, if you will. And I've heard other people traveling through India who are seeking the same thing and coming to a conclusion similar to what you just described of like realizing like it's a path that doesn't have an end, you know, and you although have at this point, I mean, pre-conversation, you talked about you are a teacher of Dharma and meditation and it's like not a certification. It's almost an honor that has been bestowed upon you by the elders within the community that you have been practicing this meditative state in so you're somebody who has achieved a certain level and i don't know what do you call it spirituality within this community so you are at the same time accomplishing or getting closer to something um can you kind of talk a little bit more about that and the the daily practice and maybe do you still have goals that you're trying to achieve within this daily practice yeah you, you know it's, it's interesting it's like um you know, as as far as what what is recognized as somebody who has accomplished something, it's like um, it's kind of like when you accomplish the realization that there's nothing to accomplish. Um, you know, I, I think this is you know one thing that maybe is looked upon as as something positive. Like I feel like I've accomplished nothing. It's kind of like when they ask the Buddha, "What did he attain?" and he says, "You know, nothing." But I'll tell you what, I lost. You know, I lost anxiety. I lost depression. Um, you know, it's, it's this, it, this path is a subtraction problem. So it's the lack of suffering. And, you know, and I think that really when we're looking at, um, you know, as far as teachers go and, again, what, what, um, what constitutes a, a teacher that has achieved something is that um, it's really this, this pure intention of and commitment to the path. And again, I feel like this is more of like the rudder in the water. And what, what really matters to me is the intention to really the intention to benefit others, to be of service with, with the path. So it's this kind of sloughing off of selfish intention and moving more towards, uh, service oriented work. Um, and I remember one of my teachers says, you know, when, when the response, well, you know, what is transferred? I, I gave it away just now, but what is transferred, like between teacher and student? Uh, you know, when, when this, this teacher bestows upon like the teacher title, like what is actually given? And so see, some people might think it's knowledge or something like this or wisdom, and it's actually responsibility, responsibility 
that's what's actually handed over. That's the transfer, right? So we have a responsibility to care for others. And really for me, that the teaching part, it was completely accidental. And all I've ever wanted to do was to give back and honor my teachers. You know, being able to live at meditation centers for six years and seeing the selfless service of these beings that are not suffering. They could just chill and just, just hang out and be, be cool with what is, you know. And here they are pouring out their souls, their, their, every ounce of energy that they have to benefit other, other beings that they see, oh, they're still suffering and I'm going to do everything that I possibly can to help them out. And that's all I, that's all I'm trying to do is just really honor them with that. So I think at the, I think at the end of the day, like, you know, so like a Dharma teacher says, it's really about your intention. You know, a meditation teacher might be the difference between a, a gym yoga you know, and more classical, spiritual, traditional yoga. You know, this is um, between like my heart of hearts, even though I teach a lot secular meditation, uh, clinical settings, so non-religious. My heart's in the Dharma, which is really doing this not for, you know, just for performance or be a better worker. It's really to end suffering. Like this is what it's really about. And not short-term suffering, but sustainable and reliable end of suffering. This is what the Dharma affords. The Dharma is the entire system. It's not just like meditation where it's plucked out you know, of, of the system and stands alone. But this meditation has been taught within a system for thousands of years. And to know all the different pillars and the foundations and what gets you through certain challenges, challenges and obstacles. So there's a lot that goes into that. And so the more the Dharma aspect is, is having kind of the wide view of, of all of those different pieces. Mm, interesting. Can you talk to me and the audience a little bit about the suffering that you experienced prior to engaging in this practice and kind of where you find yourself these days? Um, I mean, were you somebody who suffered from extreme anxiety, somebody who suffered from like obsessive thoughts, um, and now it's kind of been eradicated from your life? Or can you just kind of give us a pre pre meditative Casey <laughs> <laughs> well I definitely have suffered from anxiety and it was that that runs and very deep in my family on both sides of my family and I think I didn't really know it when I was growing up you know I didn't know the name for it mental health wasn't what it is now like as far as awareness goes and then actually like later in life like you know maybe halfway through my practice I actually got you know, severe anxiety, but I was already skilled in the tools, but I was able to meet it, but it took you know, quite a while uh, for that to go away. And I think that, you know, we don't need to have severe suffering uh, for this to make a really one, uh, amazing impact, you know, in our, in our life that I had a really bad temper, you know, for example. Um, and I had a longing. I think all of us have a longing for, contentment you know we're going after these these goals in life and and that they're empty you know they're um or or we're scared by what i call paper tigers you know like things are coming at us and they're not real but but they definitely affect us like like they are 
And so either we were moving back and forth from being controlled by either negativity or even our desires and passions. Sometimes we go after them and we attain these things, but they're not sustainable. So in other words, we're not going after things that are really, truly fulfilling in the long run. And I think we all can relate to this longing, like something more. It's always something more, like I'm going to be happy when, I'm going to be happy after this, after that. And I think more than anything, that's what I had. I had this longing for something real. I was like, this can't be it. You know, whatever they're telling me that this is, this, this really cannot be it. And I needed to find something uh, that was more grounding. You know, so fast forward to now, um, I think for one, to have a home base. So, of course, I, you know, I still have thoughts and emotions arise that would be categorized as depression or, or maybe a down mood or anxiety. But having a place in meditation that, that we could all find that it's a feeling of I'm okay no matter what. Like there's a sense of okayness. There's a sense of a place of, of refuge or peace that we can go back to and say, I look at it as like an eye of a tornado, like there's complete chaos, let's say in a, in a tornado, all around swirling winds or whatnot. But if we look from the top down, in the center is stillness, it's calm, and all that debris is flying around. So meditation is a way to get back to that within ourselves, that we could be completely okay, even when chaos is all around, <laughs> which that's life. <laughs> life is chaotic, you know? So how can we find a home base for that? I think it's interesting that you had, it sounds like your most anxious moment that you encountered or bout with anxiety pretty far into this, this practice of meditation. Why do you think that is? Well, honestly, you know, it came after a meditation retreat and, you know, some, sometimes the things that we, as there's a dissolution of, of self, like, when you really surrender in meditation, it can bring you into places where spiritually you're very satisfied, but the body itself or the ego itself is kind of freaking out. <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, so it was, it was an experience actually in meditation of this very raw beingness that was fairly selfless. Well, not fairly selfless. It was selfless where I, it was in this place where the the Casey, the I, didn't exist. And and there's some integration processes that can happen or need to happen. And part of that is um, when we're moving towards a greater sense of love, sometimes we're faced with the opposite um, a lot of times. And um, that's why I say like, love is a currency of the spiritual path. You know, it, it's kind of what holds us through those those times when things can get a little bit ungrounding. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm very grateful for all of it. But, and this is also an important piece to, to kind of bring up here is that it is really good to have a teacher in meditation. And even though, you know, meditation is very, very popular now, it's good to note that there are side effects of meditation. It can become destabilizing, especially if, you are a sufferer of, of mental health. Um, if you have mental health uh, um, 
problems, if you will, if you suffer from depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, you definitely, you know, it can help. And I teach that demographic and that population all the time um, as part of my, my daily work at mental health facilities. But it's also you want to work with somebody who's experienced um, because sometimes meditation can be, um, can expose triggers. And so you want to be careful of that and you want to be able to work with that in a wise way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of like an ayahuasca shaman, <laughs> you know, taking people through these states of being presence that then, like you said, there's triggers and integration processes that are needed to be implemented in some way, shape or form to help that ego or whatever is unstable or destabilized or unhappy with the current present conscious situation that you're kind of moving into. Is that how you would kind of describe the two states of being? You're either present and truly conscious, like in the moment, what is what it is, what it is versus like an ego state where it's you're constantly striving for something in the future or dwelling on something in the past. Is that how you understand it? Yeah, that, that would be a, that'd be a really good broad way to put it. Yeah. This, um, asleep and awake is, is very, very simple. Like, am I aware of what I'm doing right now <laughs> or am I lost in thought? And, you know, most of meditation, it, the, the very beginning is just what we call non-grasping mind. Non-grasping mind is releasing that incessant leapfrogging from one thought to the next or one emotion to the next. And we have been habituated uh, to doing this for so long that we cannot not do that. Um, I call it like, don't eat the cake. <laughs> you know, like, like we're, we're just, a thought comes up and we follow it. Um, and an emotion comes up and we follow it. And by following it, we become the energy of it. It's so much so that we could build a persona around it and say like, you know, I am this. Yeah. So, so awakening to the fact that you are following thoughts and, and in that awakening of that, being able to come back to an anchor, like the breath, coming back to the breath, which is happening in this present moment. So this is very freeing, the ability to choose what you want to think about and what you want to let go. This is one of the main reasons to practice meditation, the ability to choose what you want to think about and what you want to let go. What do you want to nurture? What do you want to nourish? And what do you want to let pass? You know, that letting pass is very difficult at first. Right? We're really led by our thoughts and emotions. They hook us. And meditation is a practice of being unhooked. Do you think there's a evolutionary purpose for having these processes happen sort of in an unconscious, systematic way? that you ever thought about or considered without any attachment to either being good or bad. But you mentioned the habituation to it as going on for, you know, probably thousands of years. I wonder if there is a reason for it that maybe kept us alive for, you know, a period of time. And now it's because of technology, what not just an incessant sort of distraction. Yeah. Well, I think the homo sapien really needed it. You know, the, the, it's like, as, as conscious beings, which arguably the, the human birth, like this, this human existence 
we may be the only ones that are conscious of consciousness. I'm not quite sure, you know, if other animals are conscious of consciousness or self-aware in the way that we are. So if we look at the survival mechanisms, like absolutely worry or fight, fight or freeze, you know, this, this um, fear response is, you know, very powerful. And what it does in the body is it sends the blood flow to the ma major muscle groups and, you know, away from the digestive system and, you know, all these other things happen. And, you know, it's very, very useful. But we have a prefrontal cortex, you know, so we have this other part of the brain that is more cognitive and it's rational. And to be rational and actually move from love instead of fear is actually safer. Now, for a rabbit, that fight, fight, or freeze is kind of always in play, right? They're, if you look at a rabbit, it's a prey animal, and it's always watching out. <laughs> you know, it's always like, am I going to get attacked, you know, all the time? We have both. You know, we have this reptilian old brain, and then we have the prefrontal cortex, which is more rational. And what's interesting to note, and this is, you know, research-based, is that this fight, flight, or freeze has built a superhighway, if you will, to the prefrontal cortex. So anytime that we have a sense of um, danger, it sends this really quick you know, response or, or communication to the prefrontal cortex saying, you know, freak out. It could be an email, it could be a text, and we get that, you know, chemical download, if you will, of like cortisol and all these, you know, stress chemicals and stuff. If we want to go back the other way and tell this reptilian part of the brain, like, hey, we're okay. I'm actually fine. Nothing's happening right now. We're good. One of the easiest ways to do that is to bring yourself into your, into your heart center, like whatever that means to you. If you could elicit some response of loving kindness, loving friendliness, or compassion, that's one of the ways that they've proven that we could talk back, kind of go the other way, and calm ourselves down. So it's kind of another, another road that we can go back and say, hey, we feel okay. And just one little quick story about that is, in Buddhism, we have what we call the metta sutta. The, the metta means loving kindness or loving friendliness. It's a Pali word. And the Buddha taught, the Buddha taught this sutta to a group of monks who he sent out on summer retreat, and he found this amazing grove for them to go meditate, uh, to meditate in for the summer. And they were out in the wild, and they started meditating. And like a lot of us, they became fearful. They became fearful of the wild animals there. And, you know, in, in, in the lore of this story, they also became fearful of the spirits that, that lived there as well. But it was fear-based. So they came back to the Buddha and said, you know, we can't meditate. We're full of fear, right? And he said, okay. And he gave them this, this metta sutta, the, the sutta of loving kindness. And it's a very simple practice where you say phrases like, may you be happy, may you, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be at ease, and you send this to yourself as well. It's a very, very simple but powerful practice. And he sent them back, and he said, do this practice 
for those that you're in fear of and do it for yourself. And it worked. And they were able to overcome fear and continue on with their meditations. Interesting. You work with a lot of uh, people who are suffering from severe anxiety and depression in these clinics that you have scattered around Los Angeles. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the majority of the work that I do. I've been in mental health for about five years now. I work in a couple of different mental health facilities in Orange County, and they're both depression and anxiety-based. Yeah. Would, would you say, or could you say, that there's a percentage of individuals who are suffering from you know, chemical imbalances versus um, more or less, uh, say, an addiction to their mental processes? Like I know for myself and just the, the type of work I've tried to do is that I'm fully addicted to th thinking. <laughs> like I can wake up in the morning and be totally content laying in bed staring at a wall until lunchtime just letting my mind go wild. So the people that you find who are depressed and anxious, how many are actually suffering from maybe a chemical imbalance versus just a full-fledged addictive sort of attachment to their mental processes? Well, I think they're one and the same. And, and why I say that is that we are, we are, are all thought addicts, as you mentioned. Um, uh, the, the longest retreat that I was able to do was a one-year retreat. And people asked me, like, what did you, what was the fruit of that, you know, one-year meditation retreat? And I said, I'm a thought addict. <laughs> like, that's it. You know, which it only takes about five minutes to recognize that. But sitting with your mind for a year, it just really brought that home, you know. And so there could be an undercurrent of, there could be an undercurrent of why an individual is, is a thought addict in their own way. So in other words, um, it could be trauma, could be, could be OCD, um, or it could be PTSD, and it could have an undercurrent of some chemical imbalance that aggravates that habit that we all have. Um, obviously, that could turn into to outside addictions, you know, addiction to the thought of I need some, something, I need sub, a substance or something. But we're, we're all like that. Like everyone is like that. Everyone is a thought addict. You know, we just love grabbing onto thoughts and following thoughts. And this is why, you know, they say the Buddha taught 84,000 teachings. Again, I always say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who was counting that, but he only really taught this non-grasping mind. And I think if you look at all of meditation is non-grasping mind. It's noticing that, look at the mind is thinking and Noticing that, waking up to that, and allowing it to release, just like a fist that is always closed. And then with meditation, we recognize what's happening, and we can relax. It's like a hand opening. And so the mind now is like a Venus flytrap. Like a, a thought goes by, we just grab it. Grab, grab, grab. But then we're practicing releasing. And now we're, now we're in control, not the mind. This is huge. What was that year-long experience like? Because um, I'm under the impression it was like a closed uh, retreat, if you will, where it's like, what, you had to apply, get accepted, and then did you just, like, a Vipassana, stay silent for a year and meditate all day? Yeah, you don't necessarily need to apply. You just have to be a big enough idiot to do it, you know. <laughs> 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 well, you do have to get, like, permission, 
you know. And so, like, permission from the teachers that you're not, you know, it's a funny story. So, like, a couple of, so I had two retreat masters, and they were in the Karma Kagyu tradition. It's a Tibetan tradition. And one was, um, you know, two Tibetan monks, one from Bhutan and one from Nepal. And and uh, Kempo Jigme was one of them. And he was saying, you know, before I went in, he's, they have a saying, I've heard several monks say this, and they have a saying that says, I know a little bit. They'll say, I know a little bit, because they really can't say it's breaking vows if they say they have any kind of clairvoyance or anything like this. So before I went in, he says, he says, I know a little bit. He says, you, you won't go crazy. It's okay. Like, like he gave me permission to do a year long. He said, you won't go crazy. And then, um, and then after, when I got out, he said, I can't believe you made it. He says, I didn't think you would make it. He says, I, I thought you'd make maybe three months and then go crazy. <laughs> and I was like, I thought you said I wouldn't go crazy. It was funny. Um, What's the reasoning behind that? Why, why, why the, the contrasting sort of statements? I don't know. Maybe just joking around or whatever. I have no idea. Um, what was your daily routine when you did do this for the whole year? So the yeah the daily routine. So I was just alone in in a cabin. There was three of us um, on the mountain at the time, and um, and so the daily daily routine was you probably wake up maybe four in the morning or so, and I did a practice called the Noondro practice, and that's Noondro means preliminaries, and the preliminaries are just as they sound. It's it's a set of preliminary practices that gets you ready for the rest of the path. And so they're, they're based upon a lot of purification practices. The first one is prostrations. And you do 100,000 of each of these practices. So it takes you about maybe three months practicing pretty much all day to get one of them done. Um, so you just do prostrations and you're saying like a mantra um, as you say in the prostrations, um, and then you move on to three other practices. So, you know, that's, that's the core of it. And then all the while, like when you're not practicing and even when you are practicing, you're practicing mindfulness. So you're paying attention to the present moment, always attempting to be awake and aware. So it's a 24 seven practice. And within that, there are these individual practices that you're doing but you're doing about four sessions a day. So it's like you wake up do a few hours, eat breakfast, do a few hours, eat lunch, do a few hours, eat dinner, do a few hours, go to bed. For one year straight. And there's three total individuals that you're surrounded by the whole year. They're in different cabins. Yeah. So, you know, there's very little, there's very little communication, very little contact. Um, So one of the individuals was my, now ex-wife, but that was our honeymoon. Our honeymoon was to go on a one-year retreat and not talk to each other. <laughs> Is this the chef that you mentioned silly. early, early show? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that good. It wasn't that good for us because after that we divorced, but <laughs> I don't know if we had anything to do with that, but, um, can we, but t- it was, can we it was touch awesome. upon that real quick? Sorry, just done to interrupt you, but I mean, did you come to the conclusion in the same way that like marriage, um, that kind of 
uniting with each other is unnecessary with this newfound sort of peace, calm presence that you came out of it with. I'm assuming maybe you didn't, maybe you came out even more chaotic than you went in. But I mean, I, I get the impression that the reason like Buddhism and Buddhist monks don't have sex, they don't marry, um, is because they don't want to form attachment. You know, they don't have children because it's that, that mental attachment to somebody else, something else is something that inhibits them from achieving or working towards that that state of being and presence and I guess enlightenment. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's it's all about focus. You know, it's um, you know that they're moving away from friends and family or even going into retreat. You know, it's not the end goal. You know, that it's it's just a dedicated time to practice and. And that's the most important piece and that it's not external, like external, like relationships and people and information. And, you know, so much of our life is external. And when you go into retreat, you get to do the internal work, but it's kind of like you should be able to leave there <laughs> and do the internal work wherever you are. Um, but to be able to do that, to have a really suitable environment to turn inward for that amount of time is very, very magical you know to have that so i you know i think for us it was transformative in a way that when we got out we really just weren't compatible anymore um yeah just you know it wasn't wasn't a conscious decision like oh you know we don't really need to be together in a you know in that way or you know anti-marriage or anything like that it was just we just weren't compatible anymore so you then still seek relationships with females or males, whatever you're into, like, um, yeah, yeah. I'm engaged. I'm engaged right now. Yeah. So, you know, that was years ago. So that was like 2000. I got out of there at 2008, 2009, something like that. So it was a long time ago. Okay. And then your fiance, is she as interested in this type of lifestyle, this, this way of meditating, um, as you are? No, not, not in the, not in the same way that I am. Um, yeah, she really embodies these traits um, very beautifully, but not, there's not necessarily, you know, a Tibetan Buddhist path or anything like that. She does meditate and, and things like that. But So it sounds like she's already present and conscious, and you are uh, following in her footsteps. That's exactly it. You know, it's, I, I received this amazing teaching one time. I was... Um, in the meditation hall with Kinshir Rinpoche, who's this amazing, amazing Tibetan master. And he was actually the former abbot of Sarah J Monastery, which has about three to 5,000 students. And he was our resident teacher um, at Atlanta Medicine Buddha for a while. And this guy came in and he said, you know, I met this woman and she's super amazing and she's compassionate. She's, she's kind, she's patient. And, and I, but, but I, you know, I can't get her into the gampa, into the meditation hall. I can't get her to come and learn the Dharma, you know? And the translator kept translating this to Rinpoche and Rinpoche was really confused. And the translator and him were going back and forth. And finally the translator said, Rinpoche is confused because the Dharma seems to be working fine for her. Like, like she's already infused with the Dharma. Like why would you, why would she need to come to the meditation hall? Like the Dharma is not here. It's within yourself. And I, I think this is kind of part of that spiritual materialism that we can get caught up in 
you know, that it looks a certain way. We've got to follow a certain path and a certain meditation technique or look a certain way or whatever. Um, yeah. So like in her instance, she embodies it in so many different ways from her past experience and her travels and the way she's lived her life, um, that she's grown in a very similar way, um, as I have, but in a completely different path to that. That's beautiful, man. Congratulations on finding, it sounds like somebody extremely special and, and very rare. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, she is. You said something, you used a word way back that I want to kind of circle back and talk about. You used a word of clairvoyance to describe some of these masters having a gift, or you kind of alluded to it. I don't know if I picked up on it correctly. Um, have you experienced anything that's extremely unique and out of the ordinary with somebody who you know, is, say, a marathon meditator? You hear about these people who can reach these states that, that science can physically track through all the stuff they put on your head. Have you seen or experienced anything that you're just like, that's just so far out there that I've never experienced before or seen? Yeah, you know, and especially with the, the, the Tibetans and the Rinpoche's and Lamas that come, you know, I, I was around Lama Zopa um, quite a bit, but more importantly, I would say more intimately, my teachers and close friends of mine were around Lama Zopa, and he's one of the one of the lead Rinpoche's in the Galupa tradition, which the Dalai Lama is the head of that tradition in Tibetan Buddhism. And you can maybe say Lama Zopa is like second in, in that lineage, if you will. And yeah, they, they do things that are just, you know, that's absolutely unexplainable. Um, but I think that the, the key is, is that they're always doing it with the motivation to help others and, and when we get into these these happenings in our own spiritual practice and these milestones that we may be awakening to these certain gifts, the, the important piece is, is that we keep our intention very, very, very strong on why are we doing this practice and we're doing it to help ourselves and others um, have a relief of suffering. And so the, the, the goal is, that's the goal. The goal is to help others and if not to achieve these certain things, but to use them if they do come to use them in that way of, of benefit. Um, so in some ways those be can become detrimental to our practice because um, yeah, there's not the end goal. You know, the end goal is the, the freedom from suffering and something that's more stable and, and permanent. Um, but being around those beings, you see it, quite often I would say like and, and hear about it quite often from very reliable sources that they're they're doing some weird stuff <laughs> Can you but give um, the audience an example it, not I mean I don't want to take this conversation down that road but I would be interested because you know like I think an example or a, a sort of example or you know some of the I think they're Tibetan monks who live up in the Himalayas and they can control their body temperature you know, they can dry the wet laundry in the middle of the mountains at sub-zero temperatures. Uh, Wim Hof, the, that breathing sort of um, guy from Holland, seems to have tapped into that same sort of resource in his brain. Um, I'm assuming that's very common amongst some of these people that you just described. Is there is there things that go way above and beyond that, that you're just like, that's impossible? But, I mean, I guess it's possible if you have full control of your mind. Yeah, that, that, that's a good example. 
you know, of, of a practice that on the outside, it looks like you're warming your body up. Um, that's called Tumo. Uh, it's called the, the practice of inner heat. It's a very common practice in um, the Karma Kagyu tradition that I'm mostly affiliated with. Um, it's an enlightenment practice and it's burning up karma. It's very, very closely related to like a Kriya practice in the more Hindu tradition. And um, they also call it like, you know, meditating on the bliss because it's a very blissful practice as well. Of course, it helps. Um, if you're meditating, if you're a meditator where they were meditating you know, in Himalayas and it's very cold and it also provides warmth. Um, but Milarepa was just this fantastic um, uh, Tibetan saint. You know, he was known for creating a lot of negative karma earlier in his life. Um, he actually murdered a group of people. That's a long story, but he had a lot of negative karma and he used Tumo, he used that practice to attain enlightenment in one lifetime, even overcoming, you know, a ton of negative karma, you know, so it's a very powerful transformation practice. And yet on the outside it's glorified for, you know, heating up the one's body, <laughs> but the intention actually is, is for awakening and, and reaching the, the state of clear light and in, in meditation and burning up your internal karmas. Like that's, that's really what it's for. Um, and so we can look at it superficially, like, oh, that's so cool. You can control your body heat. Um, but, you, you know, your body's going to get hot. It's going to get cold, you know, but being able to be free from your aversion to hot or cold, like that's much more beneficial, you know, mm. than, than that. That makes sense. And thank you for clarifying it and, and articulating it in that way. Like I, I can relate to that and what you're just saying. And yeah, the Western world wants to glorify it, but there is a purpose behind it. And you did a good job of helping me understand that. Yeah, for sure. You also provide one-on-one um, -on -one sessions with people. I mean, you are an instructor of meditation. You help people alleviate themselves from suffering. Um, and you also have a book coming out, correct? You have written a book on poetry or can you describe to the audience what the book's about? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. The, the book is called uh, Becoming Water, and it's a collection of my poetry. And my poetry is very pithy, so it's in very instructional. You know, I was really moved by um, the writings of Dan and and also what we call Dzogchen and Dzogchen in the Tibetan tradition. So it's very, um, very short and to the point. And, and yeah, a, a lot of it I post um, if people want to get a little a vibe. Uh, they can check out my Instagram page. So that's at Casey Howe, and that's C-A-Y-C-E-H-O-W-E. And I post a lot of the poetry there. So it's very experiential. And I chose that title, Becoming Water, because one of the first poems, and it's kind of a philosophy that I have in my teachings, is that if I was to throw a match at you, a lit match, and you are combustible, then obviously when that match hits you, you're going to explode or go, go, you know, go into fire mode, right? But if I were to throw a lit match at you and your water, then obviously nothing happens. And I see that this spiritual path is, in a sense, becoming water. You know, life's going to throw a lot of stuff at you, whether it be matches or flames, you know, wildfires or whatever that might be. Um, yeah, so... My, my poetry is kind of a path to, to get there. 
Didn't Bruce Lee also have a book of like his philosophy about becoming water, or was it uh, one of his writings that was titled that? Yeah, well? I think he had a, a philosophy of that. I'm not quite sure if it was like the actual title of Becoming Water, but yeah, I knew that he used something that sounds familiar that he used that concept, you know, of just being more fluid, mm-hmm. you know, and non resistant, you know. So if somebody were interested in learning more about meditation and you did a one-on-one with them, what, what does that look like and how does that go? Yeah, so I do all of my one-on-ones virtually. So I do them all over the phone now. I used to do Skype and whatnot, but I've been doing it for years over the phone and it works fantastic. And I work with them in a very customized way. I, I look for a few things. For one, you know, what is their meditation background if they have some experience? And two, if so, what do they, what do they resonate with? You know, we all have, um, we're acclimated differently. So some, some people are more emotional, some more intellectual. And so there's different techniques and different paths, if you will, um, that we could use. And the third thing is, you know, what challenges are they looking to overcome? So of course I work a lot with depression and anxiety, um, I work with long-term spiritual aspirants that are looking for a mentor that kind of understands the path and can help them get over any hurdles that they might have. Um, and I also work with some athletes too. To I help mostly with the emotional de-escalation, so not with the actual performance piece, but calming down their whole life <laughs> around it. And so when they when they move into their activity, they can do so in a much more balanced way i could have used you when i played professional soccer or attempted to at least there you (laughs) go i burned up so much of my my energy just with the anxiety before games that i think it really inhibited my performance yeah i know yeah it really just sucked the life out of you yeah and then you also host retreats is that correct yeah i host a variety of retreats um a lot for inside la you know, I have a sun. I have a weekly sitting group too here in Long Beach. Uh, we've been sitting every Sunday. If you're in the Long Beach area, Southern California, um, every Sunday for five years we sit together. And then I run retreats throughout the year. I'm doing one coming up um, in September that you could find on the InsightLA.org website. Um, and I'm doing a couple more early next year. And you could find all of this as well on my website. And that's CaseyHow.com, um, C-A-Y-C-E-H-O-W-E.com. And I have an event calendar on there as well. Cool, man. I think for you know a listener out there, and some people might be sitting here going, you know, like you have a website, you have an Instagram, but yet you also have this practice of you know trying to be present and conscious and and these things are described by society as distractions um how do you rationalize that within your own kind of life oh i don't like it yeah that's 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 the basics you know it's like i would love you know it's it's a double-edged sword like on 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 one hand it's really nice that we could be in front of more people and help more people, you know, with these platforms. Um, and then it's like this overlay and it's this weird overlay too, as a meditation teacher, it's like, it's not about me, you know, at all. And I have this, like, I got to present myself as a teacher, you know, or like have a spiritual resume and talk about 
where I, what I've done and where I've been. And, you know, I don't, I don't really like all of, all of that, but this is the game that we need to play. And then you need to update all the social media and hire people to do that as much as I can. So I don't need to do it. Um, I love the old school. Like I just envision, I mean, I loved living at the meditation centers where it was just like, you're just there, the teacher's sitting in front of you and you're just in person. Like you go there and hang out and, um, you know, but then again, I, I, I meet incredible people online and my Instagram, if you direct message me, I'll direct message you back. And, and I've met incredible people that I have a real relationship. I meet them in person. Sometimes we do stuff together, you know, like teach together or something like that, or, or start working one-on-one and I have people from all around the world. So, um, so there's that side of it, you know, so that's, um, so yeah, it's just, it's just balancing the, those two things. It's like, it's incredible benefit. And I think the main thing that I strive to do is just balance with the devices as far as taking time away every single day of just no device, you know, just, just putting it away and turning inward. When I say this, I have a poem that says, when there's nothing to do, do nothing. So when there's nothing to do, a lot of times you want to pick up our phone <laughs> and, and do something. But when there's, there's nothing to do, do nothing. Just be with yourself. Yeah, just investigate your, your inner world, your inner life, at least a little bit every day. I think, too, because you've, you've dedicated yourself to service, that you could also look at social media as an extension of reaching more people. So... Yes, it could be perceived as a distraction, but could also be perceived as a positive way to get your message out there, help more people, and yeah, make a more impactful change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's always the opposites, you know, that that we see in life and in that duality. So I think if something can be used for, you know, for not not so good, you know, if people are distracted by their phones. Then the way I look at that is like, hey, okay, I you know, I need to show up in their phones <laughs> and, and say something that might wake them up, you know, if that's where people's um, attention is, you know, so, um, so yeah, I think it could, it could work both ways for sure. Absolutely. And you've definitely done a really cool job designing your life in this way. And I commend you for that. If you could talk to one audience member who desires to follow in your footsteps or just desires to take that first step towards their calling, if you will, what would you say to them? Man, I would say, and without being cliche, you know, and that's just that, that, that life short, but it's like a big thing, like impermanence, you know, that, you know, passion is very hard to find. You know, I think it's, if you're, if you're passionate about something and it's, it's wholesome, it's positive, it's wholesome, and you're passionate about it, then by all means, there's there's nothing to lose. You know, there's nothing to lose that you have to, if that's your soul's calling, yeah, absolutely go for it. You know, look, look past whatever that's holding you back or fear or whatnot. And, um, yeah, there's, there's no, there's no time (laughs) for, for, for anything else than, than that passion itself. So, any passion so rare. 
Yeah, for sure. go for it. <laughs> for sure, yeah. No, beautifully said. And if you're a listener out there who wants to learn more about Casey, you can check him out at CaseyHow.com on Instagram as well. And check out his book, Becoming Water. Thank you so much, Casey, for joining us today. We do appreciate and love you. Thank you very much. Awesome, Casey. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I appreciate you. And please go check out his book at Becoming Water. It's in the show notes. And you can check him out at CaseyHow.com in the show notes as well. You know, one thing that struck me throughout this conversation that Casey spoke about was how Casey came to a point after he'd been multiple years into his meditation practice that he suffered from the most anxiety he had ever suffered from. And when we peeled back the layers, I thought his explanation of what was going on was really interesting and something I could relate to. He talked about the foundation of beliefs that we build our self-image in at a point in time when you start to become more conscious, challenge those thoughts, and step into that consciousness that conscious being that we all are, that foundation becomes unstable and starts to crumble. And it's very attached to our ego in which our ego doesn't want it to crumble because our ego has had a control of sorts over our lives for so long and is not really interested in succumbing to this newfound consciousness and presence. So Casey found himself tremendously anxious and battling, even though he had been practicing meditation for so many years. And as he says, he did have the tools to work through it. But it is something that struck me in that no matter how far along you are in this journey of becoming more conscious, watching your thoughts, becoming the observer, there is a solid foundation of beliefs that I am this and I am that and I am great because or I suck because, which ultimately are not true. And as you walk down this path, you will be met with many tests, if you will, reminding you that you are not these things, even though you feel very attached to these ideas, and these ideas can evoke a tremendously powerful emotional response to the new discoveries that you will make. So what I took from this discussion was stay present, stay in it, don't run from it, feel those feelings, let them be, let them go, acknowledge them, don't fight them, and you will get to where you want to go a lot faster by acknowledging them, accepting them for being there, and then moving forward in a state of presence. So thank you, Casey, for coming on the show and helping me come to that conclusion. Remember, if you're a first-time listener, please hit that subscribe button. And if you haven't yet gotten a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt, please head on over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and pick one up. Thank you for listening. I think you all are so very beautiful. I hope this finds you at a moment in time when you are happy and ready to receive this message. And I look forward to seeing you in next week's episode with another really rad inspirational story that hopefully motivates you to take that first step into whatever you desire. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.